First year's great because it's all pure adrenaline. And if you do it well, the second year feels amazing. By the third one, that's when expectations really start ramping up. You're always going to see games that are not quite right. And if presence is reliant on that, then again, no, then it, it seems to me that it's, it's a very tall order. Welcome to Built to Play. Games and technology for the arts and client. I'm Robin Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, why are we still talking about Gamergate? Plus, we have other stories about hatred and death threats. It's been a rough week. But first, we kickstart our theme on friends and enemies with GamerCamp's founder. So this new theme month is all about how we play games with each other, where we play, and why. That's cooperative games, competitive games, and social media. But we're starting with the mother of all game gatherings, the video game convention. Movie fans visit film festivals, bibliophiles go to book fairs, but game players charge into the convention. Think tens of new games in a warehouse packed with people who want to play them. You bring friends, maybe dress up as your favorite character, and alongside hundreds of thousands of other people, indulge in an adventure. You know, play games you've never seen before. Meet people who made them. Buy an irresponsible amount of merchandise. And you've probably heard of a few of these before. There's the Penny Arcade Expo in the U.S., the Tokyo Game Show in Japan, and Gamescom in Germany. But game conventions can get a lot smaller and a lot more personal. For that, we had Gamer Camp. I didn't go to the first one, but I know it was only one day, so that's different. And I think it was just talks. And then it sort of, like, transformed into this weird festival thing. But the thing that's interesting about Gamer Camp is it's because we have such a bustling scene in Toronto, it's become like a reflection of where the city's at. Like, as as Toronto game community has, has changed and evolved and grown and become a lot more prominent just in, like, the global uh, the global video game culture, they, they've changed to sort of reflect that. And, like, as, like, games get... Like, when Cappy went from being, like, those guys who made Critter Crunch to, like, it is Cappy, we saw that. It reflected in Gamer Camp. We saw that when, like, Drinkbox um, became, like, way more prominent, and then that was featured in Gamer Camp. And Gamer Camp, like, just got more and more professional and, like, got really, like, we're part of a thing. There weren't, there weren't a lot of avenues for, for people to find new local stuff. And there is now. So that doesn't mean I don't miss it. Like, I already miss it. It's why we're still doing it. That's John Remedios, a game designer based here in Toronto. He's right to miss Gamer Camp. After running for six years, it's done. It actually ended earlier this October inside a niche hotel in Chinatown. While not well known, it's the biggest games-only festival in Toronto. Just look on Twitter and you'll see a lot of locals sad to see it go. Which is why we brought in one of its founders, right. Jamie Wu. Uh, so yeah, just... So I shouldn't laugh too hard into the mic. I have a really hearty laugh, so... Among other things, Jamie's a tech writer who didn't have a strong background in game design or even the game community here. But he loved playing games and wanted to see what Toronto had to offer. He couldn't find a place to do that, so he made his own. Around 2009, uh, indie games became really popular. And two of the biggest hits from indie games actually came from Toronto. So there's Everyday Shooter. Then there was also N+. Which was a physics platformer that Mednet put out in 2008 that did phenomenally well. Both of those kind of proved not only that indie games could be sellable, um, but that they could be made right here in Toronto. In 2009, my friend and I, out of sheer naivety, decided to start a games event. We thought, hey, 
there aren't enough of these. These seem super cool. We came from the tech industry where people always just throw little events. Um, why don't we try to throw one for games? And for me, I wanted to hear more about what game developers had to say. I didn't know anything about the process. And so the very first gamer camp was just uh, eight speakers talking about their games, showing them off, and talking a little bit about what they've done. What did that first gamer camp look like in terms of just the space? What we ended up doing was actually finding a uh, theater down in Ossington called the Lower Ossington Theater. And they were a dance recital slash um, local playhouse. And they fit 100 people. And that was more than what we needed. Uh, and that's what it was. It was just one room where speakers sat in the front and they had a projection and their slides and they talked. And we had 125 people decide to come out for that, which was pretty cool. What was the preparation like to kind of get the first gamer camp in place? It's really funny that you asked that because now with everything that I've learned, if I were to redo the first gamer camp, I could probably put it together in a couple of hours. But back then, um, it took us weeks and weeks of preparation. And mind you, we were not actually part of the games industry. My friend Mark and I were just two schlubs who wanted to do something with games. Um, so we had to cold call and cold email everybody and beg that they come and talk at this thing. And we're really lucky that uh, in 2008, so just one year before the first gamer camp, uh, indie game collective called Hand Eye Society started in Toronto. And so they came on board and helped us out and really gave us some cred to keep going with it. Um, but we were very, very frantic that first year, afraid that nobody was going to show up. What is your strongest memory from that first year? What do you keep coming back to? Mayor and Reagan who are behind MetaNet and M+, and the upcoming N++, they were running late. And so we were all, everyone was seated, and they had not arrived yet. And we started panicking because we thought we'd have to rejig the schedule, or maybe they just weren't going to show. We had no idea. And we had only communicated with them through email. And we thought, oh my god, what if they don't show up? It'll be crazy. But they stormed in five minutes before they were supposed to go on, and... We weren't even upset or anything. We were just like, thank God you're here. You got to go on. You got to go on. And they did a great presentation. And now, you know, like, it's funny because now in 2014, we're really close friends. But back then, it was like one of those things where I was so scared that they weren't going to show up. Uh, and then at the end of the first gamer camp, we actually had someone bring in arcade machines to do kind of like the pop-up arcade that we do now but with actual arcade cabinets but one thing that no one ever tells you about these cabinets is that they look sturdy but the second that you move them and replace them back down about a third of them will just stop working and this was commonplace the guy who owned them was like oh doesn't work anymore that's what happens hopefully it'll rework again later and so we had a third of these dead machines in there. Um, we were so happy that the event had gone well that we didn't care. But it kind of was interesting to realize that this perfect idea of an arcade didn't always come out the way that we expected. What made you decide to do it for five more years? <laughs> so um, for anyone who ever wants to get into this stuff, um, 
my advice is always, you know, the first year is great because it's all pure adrenaline. And if you do it well, the second year feels amazing because you're trying to repeat that success and you want to make it bigger. You know, it's, uh, it is like in film, it's the sequel and you want it to be bigger and, and everything better than the first one. By the third one, it gets really interesting because that's when expectations really start ramping up. People expect this thing to go on forever. And you have to really think about how that succession plan happens, uh, especially when it's a grassroots event where we ran on a very tight budget and we had to really depend on people's uh, goodwill for getting a lot of stuff done. Um, but it's really just because the we did it because I still love games and Toronto has only gotten better with the games that it releases. And there's still a huge gap in terms of having a mainstream audience see the really great work that happens here. Um, those things have not changed, even though the festival is ending. Uh, and, you know, we tried our hardest during these six gamer camps to make sure that as many people got to know how awesome the city was uh, for its game making. How has been the transition between from kind of your early your early gamer camp to George Brown College, this new setting? Yeah, I mean, at that point, it was very uh, encouraging that George Brown would come on board and give us space, and it gave us the ability to uh, venture into uh, more different types of speakers. So in our second year, we had... Um, he, w he did level design, I think, for the Scott Pilgrim game for XBLA. And he just had... We brought him in from Montreal. He was the first time that we had someone from outside of the city... But his presentation was so interesting because he was just scarred for life from working on that project because apparently it just got shipped to China and it was not as strong as everyone wanted it to be. And obviously Scott Pilgrim at that moment was so hot and so Canadian that they didn't want to mess it up. Um, and he just, it was like a therapy session. It was 45 minutes of him just relaying all the things that had happened and he had his girlfriend on stage because he was so nervous about talking it was the first time we presented but that also to me you know I think the whole audience didn't feel like it was a bad presentation they just really felt for him and to me as the co-organizer great you know he spoke honestly about what it was his experience was on it and it may not have been a perfect thing but I don't think that these presentations should always be so polished and perfect. So that was our second year. We got to mess up a little bit in interesting ways that never felt bad. And that's what you always want to keep doing is to keep changing things up and trying new things so it doesn't become too static. A lot has changed in the last six years at Gamer Camp. They went from a movie theater to a college before landing at the Ocho Hotel. It hosted a weekend arcade. Ubisoft the leads have run multiple talks and designers have flown in all the way from New Zealand. So why end it? People love it, and it's making money. And Jamie says the show's just run its course. Why is this the last year of Gamer Camp? So this is the last year of Gamer Camp for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, the main one is that this was a grassroots event, and grassroots events require passion and blood, sweat, and tears, and they run on ridiculously small budgets. Um, and at some point, for everyone involved with it, there is just fatigue. There's a sense that um, you do it for as long as you 
want to, and then you don't want to continue it if you don't think you can keep up with what you've done before. Um, I never want a gamer camp to be too big. You know, I think it's wonderful that we've got Fan Expo and we've got all these giant like PAX East. They're great. They're fantastic, but they're also humongous. And I never thought that I could build something that felt special for twenty thousand people. You know, the thing about Gamer Camp, uh, and the reason why so many people in the industry and fans tell me it's their favorite event ever, is because it really feels like it was thought up for you. So you walk in and you're in a hotel and all the games are situated all around you. The developers there, you get to talk to them. It's you don't feel anonymous. You always see someone that you can talk to. If you're if you have a question, you can always ask someone. Um, and it looks effortless, but it's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. At what point did you guys make the decision that this was going to be the last one? You know, it was uh, a lot of hemming and hawing because we knew how much we loved the event and how much other people loved the event. Um, but we had to have some very honest conversations. So I've been doing this for six gamer camps. I was definitely ready to find something new. You know, it's just something that... Um, I think that people understand wanting to try a new project. Um, and then the team around me, you know, they've been with me pretty much since the get-go and they felt the same way. And it didn't feel fair to thrust Gamer Camp onto a whole new group of people um, without them having any support, really. Once again, John Remedios. The thing I'm going to remember most about, about Gamer Camp 2 is uh, it's just like the feeling, like the I was pretty new to video game, like video game industry and stuff. Like I, I had been working at a, a studio, and uh, but I didn't really know anyone, and it was the first sense of community that I ever really got. Uh, and I'm like, we were in the underground cinema, which doesn't exist anymore, but it's like it's a pretty big space, and people were giving talks, and the talks were all really interesting. And then the next day, we had the like the cereal breakfast, and everyone came in their uh, in their like robes or pajamas or whatever, and we ate cereal, and we went to some more talks or played video games, and it was just like it just felt good. It just felt like you know this is a thing that this is a, a place that I can be and make friends, and you know I I don't think I'd be making video games at least I wouldn't be so determined to make video games if there weren't like if Gamer Camp didn't exist. Yeah, it's really important to me. to do something like Gamer Camp again in the future? I think by ending it now, it leaves open the possibility that maybe someday, right? I think that if it had just continued to, to go on almost like a zombie, there'd be no chance to be able to... Oh my god, I'm just realizing we're like cryogenically freezing Gamer Camp. We can defrost it someday later. Uh, who knows, right? Maybe. I think that it really depends on what the community wants. Um, and, and if it makes sense. Uh, to me, uh, I'm always thinking of new ideas. So it may not be a, an official gamer camp thing, but there'll be something that I'll come up with, I'm sure. And then at the very end of this, what, what are you looking for? What is, what is going to be after this? After you've cleaned up, after you've put everything away, what's, what are you going to do next? Uh, I will probably uh, take a big ball of wine and watch Netflix and recover in bed for a week. Um, and then I, I look forward to playing games not in a curatorial capacity. 
I'm really excited to just play some games for the hell of it and not always have to be like, should I be showing this at Gamer Camp? That's going to feel really cool. Jamie Wu is one of the co-founders of Gamer Camp. You can find him on Twitter, at Jamie Wu, and his work at Hazlitt Magazine and The Daily Dot. Couldn't make it a Gamer Camp? Well, I have good news for you. Next week is a full Gamer Camp episode. So, hey, do you want to hear about some new, crazy local multiplayer games? I hope you tune in. But since we're talking about friends, we may as well move on to enemies, as Gamergate lands itself on the front page of the New York Times. So, a seriously unthinkable number of done stupid things happened in the last week's installment of everyone's favorite hate movement. So, let's just dive into it. Yeah, uh, as a bit of background, Gamergate is a hashtag spawned from the attack on a woman's privacy with the ostensible intent of fixing the corruption inherent in games journalism caused by relationships between games games writers and games makers. This isn't true. It's never been about that. It was about attacking a woman who orchestrated orchestrated by a group within 4chan dedicated to preserving the gamer identity and keeping out women and casuals. To that end, they've attacked women in the industry, doxed people who tried to help them, and continue to harass publications and companies that oppose them. Yes, so on to the first unfortunate uh, survivor of this, Brianna Wu. Yes, earlier, um, last week rather, the Brianna Wu, the head of the development studio Giant Space Cat, fled her home due to death threats made against her over Twitter. She was targeted after tweeting a series of anti-Gamergate memes that presented the movement as a crying baby. Not all that inaccurate. Not really, no. The pitchforks and hashtag mob didn't take kindly to it, though, and descended upon her like evil hawks. First, they repurposed a crying child meme to include multiple violent threats against her and other social justice warriors. A series of tweets from a user at Chatter Whiteman, who is presumably using a burner account, with a screen named Death to Brianna, included multiple threats to her and her husband, as well as her personal home address. Wu says she has returned home to pick up some computer equipment and make sure nothing was vandalized, and but doesn't plan on returning home to stay anytime soon. Uh, Many gators believe this is all a false flag and she's doing it for attention to rally the social justice warrior voices behind her. Which is completely insane. Right. It's insane because this is a person who is literally too afraid to go home. Yeah, that that's why would you even why would you even make that situation up? That doesn't sound She's been on uh, MSNBC, I believe, yes. and there was something else she was on. Another uh, major news organization. She was on MSNBC in which she called out actually a couple um, games writing institutions which only until very, very recently put out mm-hmm. any kind of statement about Gamergate. And many of them haven't at all, actually. No. It's no. been very very few of them. And some of the messages that have been put out have been problematic, to say the least. Yes. Um, but before we get to that, we should yeah. probably talk about Anita Sarkeesian. So, yes. um, last week, Anita Sarkeesian, known for her Tropes versus Women in Video Games series of videos, was scheduled to give a talk at Utah State University on the subject of misogyny in games and online harassment. Of course, because simple, innocuous things can't just happen, the school received an email about a threat to terrorize the school if Sarkeesian was allowed to speak. The email threatened that there would be a Montreal massacre-style attack against attendees, students, and the women and the staff of the Women's Center with a semi-automatic rifle, multiple pistols, and a collection of pipe bombs. The Montreal massacre reference there, also known as the Ecole Polytechnique massacre, took place in 1989 when Mark Lepine killed 14, 14 women, injured 10, and killed four men in the name of fighting feminism for committing suicide. Just in case you were wondering what this is really about. Yeah, so the email specifically references Lepine as a hero who stood up to the toxic influences on feminism on Western masculinity, and oh God, why? No, that's that guy was a crazy person who thought that uh, women were steal. That the reason he didn't get into university was because women took his positions, and he wouldn't have gotten if it weren't for all the women getting into engineering programs. He would have gotten in anyway. 
the email also says that this this person who sent the threat says that feminism has ruined his life, which I, I mean, I look around and it's just like, so you want to, to destroy, you claim that women, feminism controls everything and your solution is to kill women? Yeah. That and seem... it's how, how has feminism ruled your life? I thought we agreed that we do sort of live to a certain extent in a patriarchal world. At the very least, I mean, I think it's fair to say that men have a better time of it than women. Sure. At the very least. And I, yeah, I, I don't understand. I don't understand how feminism has ruined anybody's life. Um, threats were also made. Uh, this is actually the third time that threats were made against Sarkeesian's appearance in a public setting. Threats were also made at Geek Girl Con t- uh, two weeks ago, as well as at GDC, where she received an award. Um, now, the reason she canceled her talk in this particular situation is that uh, police weren't capable of taking steps to prevent concealed firearms at the event. So in the state of Utah, you're allowed to have concealed weapons uh, so long as you have a permit. But And police apparently weren't willing to do much beyond that without uh, – weren't beyond checking uh, bags for those without permits. They weren't going to set up any kind of barrier for people who ha- were trying to conceal a gun. There wasn't, yeah. no, wasn't going to be a gun-free zone. Apparently, you can just have a gun in a university campus. America! US. America! <sighs> yeah. America. Anyway, as I was to say, it's like it's great to live in Canada. Then yesterday happened. So, yeah. Well, for those uh, listening, yesterday was the day that a uh, a man t- killed a soldier right on Parliament Hill near uh, within like less than a kilometer from our prime minister. So mm-hmm. that was a crazy news day. Mm-hmm. Um, shootings are, I mean, up here shootings are pretty uncommon. Um, the, the, one of the reasons the Montreal massacre stands out is because that so rarely has happened and mm-hmm. because of it instituted much harder gun laws here in Canada. Um, the idea that someone would want to ever recreate that is kind of horrifying in all its senses, just mm-hmm. be, not just because of what it represents, because of how deluded that person must be mm-hmm. as to what the Montreal massacre is. And even if they're just using a threat, let's say they're not actually crazy and they wouldn't go through with this. I mean, most of these threats have turned out to be empty, mm-hmm. but... Even assuming that they were using this as an example, that's so so callous to the people who were involved and got injured or died from the from the Montreal massacre that it's it's kind of reprehensible that this even came up. Yep. And now the question is, where are we now? It's been what three months since GamerGate began in its nascent form. It's not gone. Nope. Uh, it definitely seems to be a you know, a seething tumor upon the side of the of the games industry and the games press. I think what happened is what's happened is basically they've because mainstream uh, newspapers like we mentioned, the New York Times, Washington Post, we were NBC, NBC um, and Yusakizian was in Rolling Stone. Uh, all of these places, they've kind of like brought GamerGate to the light of most people, where they've gone, wait, hold on, what is going on? <laughs> um. And, I mean, most of Gamergate is kind of stuck on Twitter. I mean... Yeah, there's, there's not really any action outside of it. And, they're, and they're, the few actions they are taking, stuff like their Operation Bayonetta 2 and Operation Krampus, where they want to ruin Christmas, um, <laughs> is mostly ridiculous and, un, you know, it's just completely infeasible considering there is, at highest estimations, 30,000 of them. And, at, I mean, like, what was it? They were trying to do a... They're, if they try to do a boycott, I mean, really? Has has a has a nerd-style boycott ever succeeded? And even if it did, 30,000 people, at being generous, is a rounding error for most companies. Yeah, yeah. No, um, they're, they're not going to... Yes, they're not going to do anything, and it's not worth it. I do think that uh, the one thing that's been... That's happened uh, since then has been... we There was Polygon, GameSpot... Giant Bomb. Bomb. They all put up a some kind of statement saying, Hey, guys, it's not cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, they haven't... 
I mean, it, it only took them until the very last possible moment, and right. all the other institutions had spoken out on this. So great timing, guys. Yeah, really shows a, shows a lot of force of character. Um, but the the thing that bugs me about that is that it's not that these guys are doing it too late. It's where is every other publication in this? Right. I've seen plenty of individual writers, but nobody seems to be working as an organization at a higher level. I saw The Verge say something before, like a week or two before any game site did. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, because The Verge, and considered The Verge and Polygon are owned by the same company. It's Vox. Mm-hmm. It's all Vox Media. So The Verge was already a step ahead of the writers in the... Uh, the games industry, which I feel might be a weird statement that mm-hmm. like maybe games writers are actually kind of in a weird situation than weirder situation than I, I don't uh, think it falls on any one individual in particular, no. but I do think that there is a certain amount of editorial weirdness. It's an insti- I think it's an institutional cu- culture thing, like yeah. this idea that you stay silent. I mean. It's just been beaten into them, the kind, the idea that you look, you stay silent about these things, you talk about games. I mean, to their communities, if they do anything like this, a lot of the times the communities freak out. Like mm-hmm. it was, if you looked on Gamespot's forums, those were a nightmare. Giant bombs weren't much better, and Poly- Polygon had a weirdly civil one. From Polygon, I think, just generally has a sort of a different, a very different audience. Yeah, yeah. overall, but. I didn't see, you know, I didn't see a, I think maybe US Gamer also, like Eurogamer, yeah. the, the Eurogamer, US Gamer Network published something, and I didn't see the comments there, but Eurogamer is always a strange place. Um, but yeah, like... Weird Brits. But I didn't see something from, say, a Game Informer. I didn't see something from, say, a Destruction. I don't want to be sitting here and call it, and name calling or anything. I'm sure there are ba- there are various reasons. Um, but I also know that it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, at this point, silence is complicity. Yeah, totally. And at this point, allying yourself, being complicit with Gamergate is being complicit with multiple crimes and hate speech. Yeah, anyone who try again, we've, we mentioned this on our last one, and we uh, hopefully this will be the last time we bring this up on the show. Um, Gamergate does not... St- uh, you could say whatever you want about what it stands for, but in practice... It is a movement that promotes hate speech, promotes doxing women. I mean, Felicia Day did her own mm-hmm. little uh, thing on Tumblr. And got doxed within the comments. Yeah, it's insane. Like, Felicia Day is a much bigger figure than anyone who's been had in the games industry. industry. And yet she was still a tar- she was still targeted by these people. Mm-hmm. So clearly no one was... was uh, no one is, is safe from these ma- these lunatics. It has nothing to do with gate with ethics and game journalism. If that's really the drum you want to pretend to beat, yeah, no. So it, look, this is not. If you listen to Gamergate, and I am talking to you, Doctor Piccolo, who sent us hate <laughs> tweets. I if love you, Twitter. I love Twitter so much. If you are a person who affiliates themselves with Gamergate or hasn't taken a stand against it in some in a public or private context, in your own mind, at the very least, analyze that. And if you still want to go with it, then we, you know, kindly ask you to stop listening because we don't want to have to deal with you, Dr. Piccolo. Yeah, it's not uh, – we, we could use those kind of fans. Um, I mean, on top of that, there's – I think this is going to be a running trend for a while. We're mm-hmm. going to have to deal with just this undercurrent of conservatism. I mean, that's what basically it is. is this kind of like far-right reactionary yeah. uh, positioning. Um, th- Hopefully, what ends up coming out of this is that we're able. What, what's kind of happened is that Anita Sarkeesian and a lot of the women in the game industry have kind of been empowered mm-hmm. as as a result to some extent. Like these people have gotten an opportunity to have their voices heard in a way that they wouldn't have if they hadn't gone undergone these terrible situations. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that there's anything to thank for Gamergate because of this, but this is an un, uh, unintended consequence. They've accidentally martyred a whole bunch of women 
as well as created a very real enemy for the disparate uh, progressive people within the games industry to rally against. And not even the progressive people, even the moderate people who see the far, far right and say, oh, we're not that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so long as we're talking about reactionary nonsense, uh, let's talk about hatred. And we don't mean the concept. Hatred with a capital H? Yes. Um, which is different from hatred with a lowercase h and different from hatred with a lowercase h and a capital A, which is no. my DeviantArt screen name. <laughs> so earlier this week, a trailer was released for a game called... Hatred. Uh, if the name get t- didn't tip you off, the game was kind of um, negative. Bad? Bad is a word that I wrote. Uh, the trailer involved some pretty gratuitous violence that had members of the game's press up in arms. This is notable because very little of the press was up in arms when Assassin's Creed Unity's trailer featured a beheading. So we're probably dealing with some hardcore senseless violence here. Yeah, so in case you haven't seen the trailer, uh, Hatred is an isometric shooter with a really terrible guy. Uh, the trailer starts off with this monologue, which sounds like it was ripped off of a particularly bad Punisher fanfic. I just hate the world and the humans <laughs> feasting on its carcass. My whole life is just this bitter, cold, bitter hatred, and I want always wanted to die violently. This is the time of vengeance, and no life is worth saving, and I will put it in the grave as many as I can. It is time for me to kill, and that time for me to die. My genocide crusade begins here. You started as the DNA strand from Jurassic Park and ended as Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't feel like he deserved a, a proper voice. I just proper hate voice. this world. <laughs> I say, I say, my genocide crusade begin this and that's uncomfortable. Um, the protagonist proceeds to shoot down innocents in increasingly brutal ways, stabbing cops multiple times in the stomach and blasting people's off with a shotgun. The works. You can watch this trailer. I don't use the word trigger warning a lot because I think it's a little doofy. Trigger warning applies in this case if you are uncomfortable with really gratuitous, senseless violence. It's also, I mean... It's not like we haven't seen games like this before. It, this is kind of like, uh, I mean, let's, the way he put it was, it's a reaction to the politically correct trends in gaming. These days, when a lot of games are heading towards the polite, colorful, and politically correct and trying to be some kind of higher art rather than entertainment, we wanted to create something against the trends. We say, yes, it's about killing people. And the only reason the only reason the antagonist is doing that sick stuff is his deep-rooted hatred. That is from the developer C- Destructive Creations Games. And I have two things to say about that. One, your name is Destructive Creations, uh, which is actually... I believe, uh, what's it called? An oxymoron. Yes. But the other thing is that whenever I hear the word politically correct crop up, I'm yeah. like instantly suspicious. Oh, yeah, totally. So this is basically Postal. What I mean, yeah. if you've ever played Postal, it's... Oh, they name drop Postal plenty of times in recent interviews afterwards. Which I feel like is a bad place to start because those mm-hmm. games have been terrible. Like, no iteration of those games have been any good. As much as the developers have wanted to say, hey, look, it's a funny game about, like, a guy going crazy, a, a guy going crazy and killing people, the game mechanics are just, like, just, it's not fun to play. Like, no. those games aren't even fun so he's clearly coming from a point of reference that is already terrible but that's not only that's not the that's only the beginning of the hatred story people began accusing destructive creations and their ceo uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna mess up this name here i'm not very good at polish i i apologize for my people's history uh <laughs> jaroslaw zielinski for being affiliated with an anti-Islamist group called the Polish Defense League the pdl patrols warsaw nightclubs quote defending women from muslim men Wow, uh, this all started up because Zelensky liked their page on Facebook, which he told on Polygon was not an endorsement of their activities. Uh, he says he liked it because it is his source of information for the, quote, real evil going on in the Middle East. Yeah. So, you know, the the real evil, as opposed to the actual mass violence going on every day, also the 
you know, regular Muslims trying to survive and having a good time. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Um, In that interview, Zelensky also said that the game is all about honesty. According to him, political correctness has told people how to think, and his game is about being honest to what we believe, what he believes we all really are. The fact that we just want to kill people. Which, I mean, like, come on. That is the most teenage nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's like... Uh, there are so many games about just going to kill people. There are so many, and I want to point this out here, and I don't mean to say anything about the quality of indie games here, because I like a lot of independent games. Yeah, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, no matter how good of your killing people game is, Assassin's Creed is better at it. God of War is better at it. Grand Theft Auto is better at it. They have thrown hundreds of millions of dollars into being better at killing things than you. Yeah. You are never going to make the better killing game. It's also a matter of, like, the the killing aspect. The reason it's taken such a good focus is because it's simple. Like, yes. the idea, it's just a very simple mechanic of you killing another guy. It's not a matter of, like, hey, that's the only thing we want to do. If it was just as easy to make... I mean, consider just the mechanics of a gun. A gun is literally you push a button and things come out on the mm-hmm. screen. You don't need to think about it beyond that in the game mechanics, in terms of game mechanics. It's literally button that per- if I targeted the right guy, he dies. Mm-hmm. That is why it is so popular. Right. And the fact of the matter is it's easy and A, you're not going to do it well. And B, why would you want to do it? It's juvenile. Yeah, it's totally. It's ridiculous. Who... I. Really, just kind of uncomfortable. Yep. Now, while plenty of games, it's ugh, God. There is a difference, though, also between sh- liking to shoot people in a game to let off some steam, and yep. this trail, this game, which the trailer involved many, many NPCs begging for their life. Yeah, it's like, hey, did you think that one level in Call of Duty, two, Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two, was the highlight of the experience? He did. Yeah, he did. Actually, he said that in an interview. Oh God. Okay. Well. <laughs> Great. Uh, on their website, Zelensky also lashed out at people accusing him of being a neo-Nazi by uh, running down his family's history in World War II. Now, I'm sure he's telling the truth. It is a very touchy subject. Uh, however, there are probably more tactful ways of going about that than saying things like, quote, my forefathers suffered greatly because of totalitarian regimes. So who the would I be if I truly support Nazi activists? Uh, I cut out a lot of swearing from that quote. I cut a lot of swearing from all of the quotes in this uh, section. The statement also mentioned that their schlock tactics were a success, and now everyone is talking about their tiny, sort of awful-looking game. This is shock tactics, but I do like schlock tactics. That's also <laughs> what it is. This is also schlock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it does kind of beg the question, when is violence in games bad? Is there, like, an internal limit? Or But I think that this has just, like, gone so far, that mm-hmm. limit, and so self-indulgent I think nonsense. very similar to Gamergate, and I think this very much echoes what you just said before, that we're seeing kind of a far-right response. Yeah. We're seeing a hard-right reaction. Uh, and I have to wonder if Gamergate's celebrating this game yet. I didn't see any women attacked in the trailer, so <sighs> I don't know. But you know, they might have done it for their own safety. The, the problem is... But we have to move on to the third in the trifecta of this week's threats. Yeah, so this week Mike Malbeck, the creator of Paranautical Activity finally got his game on Steam. But there was a small problem. The game was listed as early access, which Malbec felt would put a serious damper on his sales, so he did what any reasonable person would do. He went to Twitter to make death threats. He made a series of vitriol-filled tweets calling Valve incompetent, Steam a awful effing monopoly, and at one point tweeting, I am going to kill Gabe Newell, he is going to die. In a fairly reasonable response, Valve took the game off of Steam, then contacted Malbec to tell him their relationship was terminated and his admin account was closed. Valve's dog Lombardi? Yes, we have removed the game's sales page and ceased relations with a developer after he threatened to kill one of our employees. 
The game has had a bit of a sordid history of Steam. Uh, last year, Malbec Studios' Code Avarice was denied a publishing deal with Steam Greenlight due to a previous arrangement with uh, Adult Swim. Malbec has since stepped down from his position at Code Avarice and sold half of his company to be ever founder. Uh, the game likely won't make its way back to Steam anytime soon, though it is still available on platforms like Desert and Humble Bundle. It also sold single-digit numbers on non-Steam platforms on a day it was taken off Steam, so there is that. Um, Steam definitely has power over devs. It's easily the bulk of anybody's sales on PC. And this guy's threats were obviously just frustrated rantings. But I don't think you can blame Valve at all. No, not for this. I mean, like, when it comes to, uh, <laughs> when it comes to like, making death threats against the CEO of your company, like, mm-hmm. that's probably a good to, to, to not Especially make Especially at a time like this. Yeah, no. I mean... I don't think there's an any any good time to make no. a death threat against one of the your business partners. I mean, <laughs> Steam is everyone's business partners if you're making a game in this industry. So maybe, I mean, you should never make a death threat against Gabe Newell. But there's also, like, the matter of, why are you making death threats as a solution to this problem? You you, you could imagine that Valve could do could be vindicative and just take, you know, these rights away from a developer they don't like. But I don't think they have. And in this case, it was a developer who seemed kind of unstable. Yeah, seemed kind of unstable and was making not great a game. So <laughs> maybe it's... Maybe all worked out in the end. Yeah. I mean, this Again, is... it's a reasonable policy to have the "Hey, don't try to, ki- don't say you'll kill us" policy. Yeah, it seems like a pretty okay thing to have in your employee handbook. I, this is kind of a culmination of a whole week of utter nonsense when it comes to threats. Uh, it's a unfortunate set of news to have. Um, it is also, I mean, there hasn't been much of, unless you you play a ton of Destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, which I have not been doing. I, you I finally swear. broke free? No, I didn't. No. I'm sorry. Uh, I lied. We have to talk after this. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, look, it, guys, death threats, probably not a good idea to make them. Death threats are awful. If you are a person who believes that death threats are an appropriate form of discourse, get your damn head straightened off or something. I don't know what to tell you. Like, if you make a death threat, there is clearly something more wrong with you than the person you are threatening. And I, I want to point out for those people, I mean, a lot of countries have free speech laws. That does not entitle them to free co- being free of consequence. Mm-hmm. Just because you have the ability to say whatever the heck you want does not mean you have the ability to get away with it. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between uh, there's a difference between yelling at someone on the internet and actively making a, a threat in their lives. For instance, like you can't when it comes to these women in Gamergate. When it comes to any of this stuff, you just can't do that. <sighs> Yeah, and that has been our PSA, our twenty-minute PSA about why you shouldn't make death threats, you morons. Yeah, except for you, you're cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I make cool death threats. You make cool death threats. Anyway, that's been it for news. I know we said at the top of the show that we're diving deep into hanging around with pals and playing games, but before that, we thought we'd wrap up virtual reality. We spent the last couple of episodes talking about virtual reality strengths and the way it could change game design, but that comes with one assumption. That people will buy it. Ty Kelly thinks that's a big assumption to make. I have a, um, a background, I guess, working in games for about the last 15 years or so, and I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen a lot of movements come and go. Uh, within that time, like I've seen things like the rise in um, speculation about virtual reality, not virtual reality, sorry, virtual worlds, 
Um, you remember like Second Life and all that sort of thing. Um, I've seen the rise of things like social gaming and then that sort of dying off. I've seen the rise of um, apparently people are starting to wonder about whether tablet gaming will sort of go the same way. And so the industry is actually has a long history of being kind of like this. Like it has a lot of sort of peaks and troughs. It has a lot of um, dreams, if you like, that almost make it to reality. Tyg is a games consultant and designer. When companies need help refining an idea or just need to course correct, they call him. A couple years ago, he tried the first Oculus headset and he wasn't too impressed. I didn't, I really didn't take to it immediately. Um, I found it very, very uh, dizzying and uh, very uncomfortable and very hard to, I, I ended up sort of taking the set off and sort of having to sit down for about a half an hour while the world stopped spinning type of thing. And back in March, he wrote an article talking about the death of virtual reality. I keep hearing that you'll need, everybody will need to have a super fast PC. Everybody will need to be able to, uh, all the, sorry, all the various headsets will need to be able to operate at a crazy refresh rate. And um, they'll also have to have to support like massive resolutions. They'll have to um, be developed like whole new orders of technology. They'll all have to sort of work like that all at once. And everybody, in order for it to be a, a viable business, of course, everybody who has a gaming PC will have to buy one and, you know, and all that. And so on. So for me, it's like you've got four or five things there. You've got insane technical requirements. You've got insane developer requirements. You've got a lot of costs on consumers. You've got a lot of just essentially, like I say, pieces that all that need to uh, fit together at once. And you've got advocates of the movement saying that without all those pieces, you don't get um, what they call presence. And if you don't get presence, then virtual reality doesn't work. It's not fun. It makes people feel ill, like all that sort of thing. My, my point is, essentially, we live in an imperfect world. We always do. And so any technology that tends to require um, perfection as a sort of a prerequisite before it can actually kind of work at all tends not to work at all. So It comes down to this. Game technology is all built around things that kind of work. A game console is not the best technology to play a game on. A PC is better. You can have a better graphic card or CPU, but it's still not perfect. That perfect console is in the future. Maybe infinitely in the future. And yet games work pretty well on the stuff we have. From Tyke's perspective, with VR, that isn't true. It needs perfection, or close to it. Virtual reality needs presence, that feeling of forgetting the real world. They don't have that. They might not really have it for decades. As the technology stands now, as it's been described, do you think that VR can achieve presence? Um, I'm a little bit dubious. Now, I must admit, my my sort of personal experience uh, with uh, VR is a little bit out of date at this point. So the last time I, I tried an Oculus headset of any kind was, it was a while ago, it was over a year ago. And so obviously that would have been very crude. I experienced pretty major nausea. Um, as a result, but I'm not trying to, I didn't, I don't necessarily hold that that's been sort of, that it's just kind of stayed at that level sort of ever since. I hear a lot of people say, oh no, it's been amazing actually, I've had a, fun, a wonderful time, I was at a conference, I was playing with um, Oculus, it was amazing, it blew my mind, like all of that sort of stuff. Um, and, and I respect um, most of those opinions that, that sort of come out in and saying those things. Um, still though, it's it's like, it's like in the same way that um, what do you call it? Uh, massive multiplayer games and social games were supposed to enable, like, empower a world of play by getting everybody together in the same area and then, um, if you like, bringing them all uh, this kind of collective fantasy. The reality of that experience and both of those experiences turned out to be much more 
uh, basic and much more um, sort of simplistic and stuff like that. And similarly with presence, it's like are, are exactly what are how much how much effort are we actually talking about? This is where I keep coming down to. Are we actually talking about say that the game that a game that achieves perfect presence has to have infinite AI and beautiful graphics and perfect physics and perfect audio and believability and great controls and like all of these kinds of things. And are we really saying that all of those things have to be in place and have to be perfect before presence is achieved? If we are, then I, I hate to be the cynic in it all, but it's really unlikely that you'll ever see a game that actually does all of those things. You're always going to see games that are not quite right or not quite there or lossy in some way. And if presence is reliant on that, then again, no, then it, it seems to me that it's it's a very tall order. Another aspect of that is the idea that you're going to need a whole bunch of peripherals, things like a treadmill, something to map your arm movements. Do you think there's a problem with the added expense of VR? One of the biggest things that stood against Connect was, uh, particularly the first version, was that you needed like a large living room pretty much and really good light conditions for it to work. Otherwise, it sort of didn't. And so it it immediately cut out about 80 to 90% of the possible uses of the system because most people... Were, were trying to get their connects to work in imperfect conditions and they didn't. And so they would just sort of kind of ignore them after a while or they'd sidestep them or just prefer to use the joypad for things like navigation and stuff instead. Um, it required too much perfection. And I, I think the same is sort of true with uh, VR. I mean, you're talking, you need a headset, as hopefully one that comes with headphones, that would be good, but maybe not. Um, you need, yeah, some sort of controller that's that's kind of gestural that you can't see which means that you have to probably invent a different kind of controller for it. And nobody's really done a very good job of that yet. For all the body movement stuff, I mean, are we, are we seriously saying that I take my computer room and I'm going to fit a bunch of optical sensors all over the walls or something um, to make that work? And, you know, similarly, am I really going to spend a lot of money putting, like, treadmills down or, like, tactical or, sorry, tactile uh, recognition elements like that? No. There's a point at which that that's just sort of, that's just sort of becomes more the kind of thing you might see in a rejuvenated version of the arcade, but you're not going to see that stuff in the home to any great degree. So, um, so yeah, so if, if it can be made to work with like a simple headset that plugs into the back of your computer and a controller that isn't too expensive, maybe you get part of the way there. But I don't see a lot of people putting treadmills in their, in their gaming rooms. As a game designer, what do you see as the limitations of just perhaps designing a product for a VR space? Well, I think the major one is you've got to assume that the player can't see their controller. So you can't make... Um, if you, you, you ever played um, Street Fighter or fighting games or that kind of thing? Uh, definitely. Okay, so you know, like, they, they, are, they are complicated joypad games. Like, there's a lot of sort of patterns like A, A, B, 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 C, C, down, down, you know, turn around, that stuff. And most of the time, while you're playing the game, you're able to... Uh, you know, you're looking at the actual sort of screen while you're doing that, particularly if you're if you're an expert. But as part of learning the game, you're not. Like, you do have times when you're looking at the joypad, you're sort of going, where's the B button again? Like, all that sort of thing. And, you know, connecting sort of from one to the other. But if you're wearing a, a, a headset, I think um, you just have to, to rule that out. You have to assume that the controls are simple enough that the player will never want to take off their headset just to find out where the trigger is on the joypad or, or that kind of thing. And so for me, I think... That means the controller, the controls for the games have to be simpler, which means the likely breadth of activities that you can do in a game probably need to be simpler as well. They need to be more natural, I think, and they need to be a little less um, 
kind of interface complicated. Don't get him wrong. He still thinks that a lot of people will be spending a ton of money on VR. But is there a difference between somebody who plays games all the time and the average family? That's his question. Will your mom and dad buy a headset or will it just be for a subset of game players? He thinks it's the latter. So for me, it's, it's actually can the units themselves be made to look less heavy? If they're huge and bulky and all that sort of stuff at the moment, can they be made to work with mobile devices? because um, a lot of people play games on mobile these days, can they be made um, quite easy to like take on and take off again? Like I don't know if you've seen at the moment, but they're you know you have to essentially sort of strap your head into one of these things and and calibrate it and stuff before you're able to sort of kind of get doing anything. And none of those kinds of none of those sort of um, aspects of what VR is at the moment speak in any way to is it a consumer product? Like they're not they're not. Um, that's the sort of thing that would just put John Q Gamer off or will um, certainly put um, any casual gamer off like entirely or that kind of thing. So for, that's, that's the thing to me is, is how does it actually go from being essentially a very cool, if imperfect technology to something that's actually purchasable by regular people and therefore purchasable at mass scale and something that they actually want to buy. Now, a lot of resources have been going into VR and making VR games. Um, a mm. lot of people think that that 2015 might be the year that we finally see a lot of products come out focused for VR. Where do you think that if that's not the if that's not the future, if that's still a flawed thing, where do you think people should be mm-hmm. focusing their uh, their attention on? So I do. So it's funny. I actually do think next year is going to. I mean, it's it's these things tend to um, get a momentum all of their own. So I fully expect actually next year will be a big year for VR. I fully expect some of the Activision, for example, will produce a, an Oculus version of Call of Duty, for instance, and that kind of thing. Um, I think that work's going to happen either way. For me, it's more like in 2016 and 2017, when somewhat like 3D TV, people sort of realize that actually it's not that um, compelling or it's not grabbing a lot of interest. It's like what happens after that. Um, for me, I think... Uh, mobile is still a really very a very strong market to be looking at. It's not um, died off by any means. Um, general PC, like I say, PCs themselves are on the rise again. Things like Steam gaming and stuff is still doing really well. Um, and a lot of particularly smaller developers, I think, could still uh, benefit by um, trying to, to sort of work within that kind of PC environment instead. Um, uh, consoles, regular consoles, particularly PlayStation 4, um, are having a very large resurgence at the moment. They're much, they're very interesting and very um, quite successful to be honest and again there's a lot there's a hunger in the audience there for uh, for those kinds of games and so on I mean in a sense I know it sounds sort of somewhat conservative and I don't mean to be but there are times in the industry when um, there are better when the known paths actually do work better than if you like the latest uh, the latest craze um, and particularly if you're if you're minded to try and sort of make something for the long term or you're minded to try and make like a franchise or that kind of thing I don't know. VR just seems like a really long shot to me at the moment. All right. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ty Kelly is a game consultant based in Seattle and a columnist on TechCrunch. You can learn more about him on his website at whatgamesare.com. That's all for this week. I'm producer Arminik Bali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Jamie Wu. And... Ty Kelly. 
For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. Uh, starting up now, our, our current theme month, all about playing games with other people. There's a primer up on the site with fresh articles every week. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Built to Play. And me personally at Flarcon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And just don't make death threats. Is it really that hard? Thanks so much for listening.